This is Unfiltered, episode 352 for March 3rd, 2021. With the fallout after President Biden ordered those airstrikes in Syria as retaliation for recent rocket attacks in Iraq aimed at U.S. forces, the top Republican on the U.S. Foreign Affairs Committee writing, responses like these are a necessary deterrent. Many Democrats also supportive. They attacked us. They hit and killed an American contractor, wounded American soldiers on one of our bases, and we're going to take a proportionate response. Hello, friend, and welcome in episode 352 of the People's History Podcast. It's It's been a week since we got together. I was going to be in the woods, but then... Biden went and dropped bombs, and uh, some bombs they are indeed. Don't you, don't you just love it when um, what America can do these days? I mean, when we come together and put our partisan fights aside and work as a nation, we can really accomplish anything as a group. If there's a need for a rescue mission, when the world is threatened, when the world needs help, it calls on America. And that's the story. DemocracyNow.org, the quarantine report. I'm Amy Goodman as we turn now to Syria. The Biden administration is facing intense criticism after U.S. Air Force fighter jets bombed eastern Syria Thursday. The Pentagon claimed the strikes targeted Iranian-backed militant groups. The London-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reports at least 22 people died. Biden ordered the airstrike on the same day he spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia, Iran's arch-rival in the region. According to the White House, Biden committed on the call to helping Saudi Arabia defend its territory from Iranian-aligned groups. The Pentagon called the assault a response to recent rocket attacks on U.S. forces in northern Iraq. Those attacks came more than a year after Iraq's parliament voted to expel U.S. troops, an order that's been ignored by both Trump and Biden. On Friday, Biden was asked about the airstrikes. That's right, baby. America is back. You remember that four weeks ago when Biden pledged when sorry when Biden pledged that America was back? Yeah. Well, here we are, right there. We're back. We're dropping bombs. It's the good old times, and it's it's not starting wars or keeping wars going. It's not. It's nothing like that. No, this. This is just counterterrorism, just good old counterterrorism policy. At least that's what the media has been telling us all week. It's important for the Biden administration to send a message, uh, a very clear message early on. That's your buddy Adam Schiff, Democrat, supposed progressive out there, champion dropping bombs on Syria. It's important for the Biden administration to send a message, uh, a very clear message early on that these attacks on our forces will not be tolerated. We're going to take a proportionate response, that we're going to respond. Um, and we hit back at them. And I think it, it's just sort of resetting expectations that if you hit at us, we're going to punch back. No one likes to talk about the fact that we have to protect ourselves, but that's the national security reality. And I think the Biden administration understands it and they're acting accordingly. I think that uh, that President Biden is pursuing a, a tough but smart approach. Is it a mistake to target bases in Syria right now? Actually, it was pretty smart. This is counterterrorism. So I don't think the Biden administration needed new permission or authorization from the Congress. Pretty smart. Important. It was pretty smart, he says. 
<laughs> I love that. It's pretty smart. When Trump did it, of course, when he when he had a when he bombed that airfield, that was uh, extrajudicial. But when Biden does it, of course, it's pretty smart. I don't think anybody's too surprised to see that, really. But what's interesting, as you probably have noted in all of this, is this strike was a response to an attack in Iraq. Kind of funny, huh? Here we are again going after a different nation than where the attack originated from. The idea being that it's a group of contractors that move back and forth between Syria and Iraq. And so they were getting one of their bases in Syria. And the White House says, really, this is just about protecting American lives. The president is sending an unambiguous message that he's going to act to protect Americans. And uh, when threats are posed, he has the right to take an action at the time and in the manner of his choosing. There you go. So he has the right to do this, to to take action uh, and to protect Americans. Uh, But this group, this Iran-backed group, as is uh, uh, pointed out immediately in, in every report, may also just have ties to the Iraq government which would mean that they're a group we helped put in place. I'm not really sure on this point. Uh, So, of course, we can only go to one expert in world affairs, and that would be your good buddy, Tucker Tuckerson. Even more amazing thing. Both of the militia the Biden administration hit are part of something called the Popular Mobilization Forces. That's a kind of umbrella group that is sponsored by the Iraqi government. Now, the Iraqi government itself is a creation of previous American administrations. So in other words, if you're following all this, and you have been for 18 years, we are now defending Americans in Iraq from people we empowered in the first place to fix a disaster that was caused by our invasion. That's all counterterrorism. Got it? If that if that's true, uh, not only would that be extremely typical for our Middle East policy, but extremely, extremely frustrating to see that. And this is the first documented military strike taken by the Biden administration. I think it was 36 days into his new administration. As you noted there, it was just after he had had met with the uh, Saudi prince. I'm sure all that timing's a coincidence. I think it's also uh, just a fantastic thing to observe that uh, Biden managed to drop bombs on another sovereign nation before they managed to get the stimulus check out the door or anything really at all to do with coronavirus legislation but did manage to to bomb another nation. And that group may have ties to the Iraqi government themselves, which has got to make that relationship a little more awkward. And it seems like this isn't going away. This is going to become part of the table stakes of the Biden administration. There are several new threats already in development, including um, new rocket attacks in Iraq. I'm going to play a clip from the White House. I want you to understand that rocket attacks are very different than missile attacks. <laughs> Rockets can be like the th- literally the little thing you make as a kid that, that can go pew, pew, pew up into the sky. That can be considered a rocket attack. A missile attack is obviously something much more sophisticated. And in the attack in Iraq, it was mostly just injuries. I think there may have been one death. Um, I, the reason why I'm confused is because I'm getting the two attacks confused because there was a death in this most recent rocket attack, but it was actually the guy died of a heart attack. And it's it's these contractors and, that are still over there after we've been in Iraq for 18 damn years. Iraq is, the war in Iraq now is legal to vote. 
and we still we just still have thousands of contractors over there. And so when there's all these different little little chicken shit attacks, these guys are getting hit because they're everywhere. And one of them had a heart attack in this latest rocket attack. Let me ask you about these new uh, rocket attacks that took place in Iraq, obviously. Still no formal assessment on who's responsible here. A lot of suspicion Iran's behind this. The president said to me last week, he said to them, you can't act with impunity. Be careful here. What do you do about this? What is the response we should expect from this administration following this new round of attacks? Well, just to confirm some of the pieces you mentioned. Uh, we are still assessing the impact of this latest uh, rocket attack, including determining precise attribution. Of course, they just happened over the course of last night. As you noted also, we responded to recent Iranian-backed attacks on coalition and U.S. forces in a manner that was calculated, proportionate, and fully covered by legal authorities. That will be our model moving forward. Uh, if we assess a further response is warranted, we will take action again in a manner and time of our choosing, and we reserve that option. The president was briefed by his national security team this morning, uh, was, of course, monitoring uh, the details overnight. What we won't do is make a hasty or ill-informed decision that further escalates the decision or plays into the hands of our adversaries. Let me ask one last question. Given the news that came out last night about Texas and Mississippi, the president was in Texas, met with Governor Abbott just a matter of days ago. They have now, in both of those states, removed their mask mandates. Oh, I just teased you a little bit. We'll get there. So this this uh, this isn't going away, this issue. Let's get to the COVID. Let's get to the COVID thing, though, because as he started to get to, I think that's where we should get to next. And I'll just keep an eye on the serious situation for you. Biden has announced that they should have enough vaccines for every American by May. So that's, I think, some interesting context to have the rest of our COVID conversation. Let me say that again. When we came into office, the prior administration had contracted for not nearly enough vaccine to cover adults in America. We rectified that. About three weeks ago, we were able to say that we'll have enough vaccine supply for adults by the end of July. And I'm pleased to announce today, as a consequence of the stepped-up process that I've ordered and just outlined, this country will have enough vaccine supply, I'll say it again, for every adult in America by the end of May. By the end of May. That's progress. I mean, you can say what you want about Biden and his administration. One thing seems clear. They are better at these logistical detail things. The, the Trump administration was constantly fumbling and making really kind of clerical level mistakes on paperwork and on basic communications where the Biden administration, they clearly have a few more pencil pushers in there. They obviously know how to talk to these individual stakeholders that are responsible for the distribution and I think they've done a good job in a short period of time. I'm not sure why they didn't come right through the door trying to get that engine up and running. It seemed like it took them a little bit of prodding to get going, but now they've done it. Now, right around the time, I think it was just an hour or two before Biden made that announcement, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, made an announcement about ending the statewide mask mandate for COVID-19 and opening up all of Texas businesses. So today... I'm issuing a new executive order that rescinds most of the earlier executive orders. Effective next Wednesday, all businesses of any type are allowed to open 100%. That includes any type of entity in Texas. Also, I am ending 
the statewide mask mandate. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You can imagine the reaction to that. Uh, I saw Twitter freaking out. People were upset. People were demanding that the mask mandate be put back into place. Uh, Austin's governor or <laughs> Austin's mayor, sorry, Austin's mayor came out and said, you know, we're still going to have a mask program that people can follow. We're still going to encourage people to social distance and mask up. The White House spokesperson, Jen Pulaski or Paskey, probably not Dr. Pulaski. Uh, she took a swipe at Governor Abbott as well in her press announcement. Just one last question. Given the news that came out last night about Texas and Mississippi, the president was in Texas, met with Governor Abbott. Just Here's that t- uh, clip I teased for you. It's a matter of... She's smiling and smirking. If you're not watching this on UnfilterTube, UnfilterTube, where I'm now posting video versions of this, she's got a real smirk on her face. Like, uh, are you seeing that chat room? That is ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That could be a meme. That could totally be a meme right there. Yes, one last question. Given the news that came out last night about Texas and Mississippi, the president was in Texas, met with Governor Abbott just a matter of days ago. They have now, in both of those states, removed their mask mandates and they're reopening at 100 percent, even as this White House says now is not the time for that. How do you characterize those decisions and what do you say to the governors of those two states that are making them? Well, first, uh, the president's position on mask wearing uh, is based on uh, the recommendations of health and medical experts and uh, their views that it could save 50,000 lives. Uh, That is why he asked the American people to wear masks for 100 days. Uh, For nearly a year, we've been dealing and navigating and coping with this pandemic. In fact, uh, I think he said there was something like, um, I think Biden said something like, you have to be a Neanderthal to to think that. I, I I have a clip of that, too. I think it's a big mistake. They're asking that this is the wrap up of a meeting in the White House and they're asking him about Abbott and the mask mandate being lifted. Look, I hope everybody's realized by now these masks make a difference. We are on the cusp of being able to fundamentally change the nature of this disease because of the way in which we're able to get vaccines in people's arms. We've been able to move that all the way up to the end of May to have enough for every American to get every adult American to get a shot. And the last thing, the last thing we need is the Neanderthal thinking that in the meantime, everything's fine. Take off your mask. Forget it. It still matters. Neanderthal thinking. I carry a card. I don't have it. I put it on my desk. <laughs> it carries a card of the death. As of last, as of yesterday, we had lost five hundred eleven thousand eight hundred seventy-four Americans. He carries a card because he has to have it written down for him. Now, I am not an anti-mask person. I, I am not. But I am a big proponent of if something is dogma, it should be questioned. And this idea that it's Neanderthal thinking to not wear a mask is offensive. Because I think it's still worth having – and this is maybe why the mask thing has never been fully successful in the United States because we have this attitude in the United States about things. And the reality is they never had just an honest, frank discussion about the efficacy of these paper masks or the thing that I see a ton right now because it's cold is the scarf over the over the mouth, you know, kind of just like and you tuck it up and then you pull it down. I, I, I mean I'm saying that a ton here in the Pacific Northwest. There's no way that works. You got huge gaps along your cheek where the air is coming and going freely. I mean, you got you got like built-in vents in these things. And in terms of 
the size of the coronavirus. It's like there's they're cheese graters. These masks are like cheese graters. So we've never had the full conversation of, well, what is the effectiveness of a paper mask or a cloth mask that's, you know, homemade or a scarf? And because that conversation was just like, no, we can't have it. No, it's science. Experts. And that's still how it's described. Oh, the scientists say, the experts say. And it's, it, that is said that way so that we, well, what, you don't, you don't agree with experts? It's said that way so it, can be, so it can be kind of positioned as unquestionable, which is it, there are certain types of people, and perhaps I'm one of them, that just sort of say, well, wait a minute. And they put their hand up and they say, well, ha- hang on a second. Hang on, because you're behaving that way, now I have concerns. And if we just had an open conversation, like from the beginning, if they just would have said something like, you know, the paper mask or the the bandana you're putting over your mouth, you know, that's probably compared to an N95, 30% effective. Okay, good to know. That that is real information that I can work with. And the reality is that may actually be what it is when you when you compare it to something that's actually effective, that the crappy masks may only be like 30% effective. So if that is the case. Is it so ridiculous that in a state like Texas, which has an outdoor culture and a lot of people are going to be outside to begin with, and these businesses have been struggling for a year, is it so ridiculous to say, you know what, it's no longer mandated, but if you want to wear a mask, have at it, Haas, there's going to be a lot of other people doing it too. And wouldn't it be nice if you knew with some certainty how much effectiveness your mask has? I want to play one of my favorite clips because really, we've just begun to have this conversation. Since the start of the pandemic, experts have urged us to do three things. Wash our hands, maintain social distance and wear a mask all the time. Not when you feel like it, all the time when you're not eating and drinking. But now the experts say with these variants, it's time to double up and wear two. This morning, Dr. Fauci endorsed the, endorsed the idea on the Today Show. Now, remember, these variants are supposedly more contagious, but they're not a different particle size. If you have a physical covering with one layer, you put another layer on, it just makes common sense that it likely would be more effective. More effective, especially with one new variant spreading much more easily. CBC's Contessa Brewer with us now to break down the science behind double masking and what we're all supposed to do. Contessa? Hi there, Shep. Yeah, the experts keep telling us that wearing masks is really about protecting ourselves, protecting others from ourselves in the event that we are contagious. But, you know, if other people aren't wearing their masks or they're wearing them improperly, we need to protect ourselves. So experts say you can double up with a tight weave fabric mask for added protection. Now, Virginia Tech researchers found that doubling up these cloth masks increases the efficacy from 50 to 75 percent. A three-layer mask could block up to 90% of the particles. And if you're layering your mask, the disposable surgical mask goes on first, and then the tight-fitting fabric mask goes right over the top. Okay, so... Actually, and you will find there is another contagious disease expert lady on the on YouTubes that will tell you to do the exact opposite, to put the cloth down first and then the paper disposable on top. And she is an infectious disease expert. And she is saying something that is a different procedure. So we have all of these little these little nuances here about how to properly wear them, about what types should be on your face, depending on your face type, and if you have facial hair. Frontline healthcare workers use N95 masks. They're hard to find. And some experts say, look, you should really save those for the medical teams. Others say, if you see them on sale, go ahead, just protect yourself. 
But the Chinese version, KN95 masks are widely available. This whole clip is so bizarre. The whole mask conversation is so strange. Is really this fit tight around your nose, your face, your chin. In other words, you really should see the mark on your face after you're wearing it. You can also buy these double layer fabric masks. They come with a filter like this one. You can take it out and you wash it separately. But Shep, in every instance, fit is the key here. Yeah, no doubt. And as they say on the label, if you have facial hair, you got to cut it because they're not effective with it. <laughs> oh, shoot. Really? Well, guess what I'm not doing? You know, it's funny when I when I first moved out, I was a horrible, horrible cook. I just sucked at it. And I just couldn't figure it out. And I couldn't figure out like what went well together and what combinations of food would work. And I also didn't know how to take care of any of my my kitchen wear, like my cast iron pans and stuff. And it wasn't until I started watching Good Eats by Alton Brown where he explained the science of cooking and he explained how things change when they're when different types of heat are applied to them or when they're combined with other things. That Then I understood how to cook. And then from that point on, I, I, I really just became a much better cook and I began to appreciate and take care of my gear. And it was because somebody was willing to teach me the fundamentals. And with these damn masks, there are some fundamentals you should know. That's why nurses are trained on how to use these things. And there's stuff that makes a difference, like static barriers and different types of cloth pour directions and all these things that matter. And if you just were willing to talk to people about this and explain to people how to, how to actually properly use these things, we could have educated our entire population. And over time, this could have been something that comes, becomes a long-term effective practice that people continue to implement because according to the numbers, I don't know if you've looked this one up, I've mentioned it before on the show, you should, the flu rates are at astronomically low levels. Unbelievable, historic, since, since we've tracked historically low numbers. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Would love to know a little bit more why they claim it might be the mass. Okay, well then let's learn how to use the mass correctly if that's the case, because there's an obvious benefit for our society. Less flu, less death, that's got to be better for the economy. That's got to be better for people's um, personal finances, like Medical bills are like one of the top reasons people go into bankruptcy here in the United States. And if we could take 20,000 people out of the hospital because they wore masks, well, then let's talk about it. But let's talk about it in a way that makes it effective. Instead, what has happened is the mask has become a symbol of compliance. It doesn't matter if you agree with that or not. It's just a fucking fact. It is a symbol of compliance now. And it means that when you put it on, you are complying. And it means when you refuse to wear it, you refuse to comply. And that kind of shit matters to some people. And that's what the mask has become in the United States. Instead of making it something effective that could improve society for years to come, we screwed the pooch at the beginning. We made it a toxic conversation. We couldn't be bothered to answer people's questions. Instead, we labeled them as Trump supporters to shut them up. And then we just told everybody to put two more masks on. What a failure. What an unbelievable failure. And the Biden administration is doing nothing to fix this. And instead, we just have this divisive issue that perhaps perhaps could have been a learning moment where we actually could ha make society healthier. <laughs> instead, has become a merch opportunity at best <laughs> and a refusal to comply at worst.
and uh, a moral issue for people. It's ridiculous. It's silly, but not quite as silly as the Senate hearing on the Capitol riots that I sat through for two days to report back on all of the shit the FBI is up to. The Capitol riots are undoubtedly the new 9-11. There's all kinds of things that are in the works that these clips are going to go through. The entire hearings are, are like six hours combined. It's broken up across two days. I have them linked in the show notes if you're a masochist. But instead, how about you let me do that part and I'll just play you the clips. Here's a little setup. The January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was an act of domestic terrorism. That's the official word now from the FBI director himself, Christopher Wray. He testified before a Senate panel today for the first time since the insurrection. Director Wray told lawmakers he was appalled by the deadly attack and admitted that the agency needs to get better at gathering intelligence on domestic terrorists. Get better. That line right there. He admits this is how this entire thing is framed. Yeah, you you know, he admits that he needs a lot more staff. He admits that he needs a lot more domestic spying powers. He admits that. He testified before a Senate panel today for the first time since the insurrection. Director Ray told lawmakers he was <clears throat> appalled by the deadly attack and admitted that the agency needs to get better at gathering intelligence on domestic terrorists. The FBI director also noted who was not at the insurrection. He shot down the baseless claims that rioters were some sort of Antifa members or fake Trump protesters. Has there so far been any evidence that the January 6th riot here, the insurrection, was organized by people simply posing as supporters of President Trump? This question probably came up 20 times. The Democrats were intensely interested in asking this. This was the second question of the day on day two by Klobuchar. They were intent on getting this out of every witness they could. We have not seen any evidence of that. And he goes on to say, of course, that there are a large mix of people. And I'll play some of these clips for you. But I wanted to play what he considers, this is the director of the FBI, the most dangerous threat to Americans today. As we view, maybe step back, what we view is the most dangerous threat to Americans today uh, is largely lone actors, some cases small cells, if you will, largely radicalized online, already here in the United States, uh, attacking soft targets, using crude, readily accessible weapons, motivated either by jihadist inspirations or by a variety of domestic inspirations. So, Man, that's a large bucket. That is, that's... It's just about anybody you don't agree with politically. And I don't say that lightly. That's a pretty big bucket of people. Uh, and so they, they need some new terminology because you have you have your extremists that are inspired by ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Obviously a big threat here in the United States. And then you have your your extremists that are inspired by domestic issues. There are two different types of terrorists that are very common. So he's got terms for them. We have the HVEs, the homegrown violent extremists, which are the jihadist-inspired, and we have the DVEs, the domestic violent extremists, who are inspired by domestic sources. That- so if you're listening to this, if you're listening to this show, you're you're probably a DVE uh, by this new vernacular. Inspirations, or by a variety of domestic inspirations. So we have the HVEs, the homegrown violent extremists, which are the jihadist-inspired. All right, so the homegrown violent extremists are the jihadist-inspired. And we have the DVEs, the domestic violent extremists. 
the domestic violent extremists, that's you. Who are inspired by domestic sources. You know, domestic issues. <laughs> like the like any issue that we've covered on this show. That bucket, which have a lot in common with each other, is the greatest threat, uh, the greatest terrorism threat we face as a country. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm pretty worried about it, too. So the FBI has got to make sure they have a lot of powers. And this is one of the this is one of the most obtuse interactions. And I'm going to play it for you up front just so we can get this one out of the way. This is where the FBI confirms it is indeed tapping members of Congress after January 6th, but won't give any oversight details. Now, part of the intention of the Senate panel is to perform an oversight duty of the FBI. But when the FBI won't give them the information, Essentially, the FBI is leaving them with, trust us, we're just going to use our powers appropriately. What authorities do you have in mind? You said that you're using the relevant authorities. What, what authorities are they? Well, we have various forms of legal process. We can serve on companies that will allow us to get access. And that's been done? Well, we're using a lot of legal process in connection with the investigation, so yes. Yeah, yeah, of course it's been done. But specifically, serving serving process on companies using invoking your various legal powers to get da- data from companies that's been that's been done in the case of gathering this data and gathering metadata I, yeah I, I mean, how, how would i know i'm just the director of the fucking fbi <laughs> again i don't know the specifics but i feel confident that that has happened because metadata is often often something that we look at and- i'm confident we're scooping up domestic information because that's something we're always doing so i would just assume <laughs> what do I know? invoking your various legal powers to get da- data from companies that's been that's been done in the case of gathering this data and gathering metadata I, yeah i Again, I don't know the specifics, but I feel confident that that has happened because metadata is often something that we look at. And we have a variety of legal tools that allow us to do that under certain circumstances. What about the, the cell tower data that uh, was reportedly scooped up by the Bureau on the day uh, during, in fact, while the riot was underway? What, what, what's, happened, what's happened to that data? Do you still have it? Has it been retained? Uh, do you have plans to retain it? I, again, whatever we're doing with cell phone data, I'm confident that we're doing it, you know, in conjunction with our appropriate legal tools and working well, with how, how, Here's what I'm yeah. trying to get at, and I think it's what Senator Lee was trying to get at. How are we going to know what you are doing with it, and how are we going to evaluate? <laughs> what are we going to do with this monster that we've created that is now scooping up our own records and anyone else in the D.C. area and not telling us about it? The Bureau's conduct, if, if, we, if we don't know... What authorities you're invoking, what precisely you're doing, what you're retaining. I mean, this is, you, you said to him repeatedly you weren't familiar with the specifics. You've now said it to me. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure how this committee is supposed to evaluate anything that the Bureau is doing. You're basically saying just trust us. I mean, how, how are we, how we going to know? Do we have to wait till the end of your investigation to find out what you've done? Well, uh, certainly I have to be careful about discussing an ongoing investigation, which I'm sure you can appreciate. Yeah, he, he can't. Oh, wait. I always pause and it restarts it. Uh, he can't. Uh, he can't tell you because it's an ongoing investigation. You can't do that. So this one's great. This is uh, this is the same Senator Holly. He asks if the FBI is uh, going to get back doors into social platforms, and he kind of triggers the FBI director to go off on a rant about oh, how they don't want back doors, and then he goes to explain what they want, which is a back door. It was almost expired. Is the FBI, are you, are you currently pressuring any of these platforms, these social media platforms or tech platforms to include backdoors in their software that would help defeat end-to-end encryption? Not terrorism, end-to-end encryption. 
Are we pressuring? Are you encouraging? Oh, are, you, encouraging. are you pushing for? Are you... You hear the words they're using here, too? This is the United States government talking about private businesses and forcing them to do things like spy on their users. Isn't that remarkable? That was almost expired. Is the FBI, are you, are you currently pressuring any of these platforms, these social media platforms or tech platforms to include backdoors in their software that would help defeat end-to-end encryption? Now, Holly should know better. Uh, this FBI director, he's a smooth operator. He's not a cop. He's a politician, and he knows not to answer a question like that. Are we pressuring? Are you company? encouraging? Oh, are, you, encouraging. are you pushing for? Are you? Uh, is well, it your desire to get such access? Is, we are not trying to get backdoors. Uh, that is, I think, a criticism that gets leveled our way by people who uh, don't understand our position often. So I appreciate the opportunity uh, to address it here. I bet he does. Uh, we are concerned about end-to-end encryption, especially default end-to-end encryption uh, in connection with a lot of these platforms. And we are concerned uh, that if these companies continue to move in the trajectory that they're moving in, we are going to find ourselves in a situation where no matter how bulletproof or ironclad the legal authority, no matter how compelling the facts and circumstances, no matter how horrific the crime or heartbreaking the victim, we will not be able to get access to the content that we need to keep people safe. So this is, of course, going to, you know, you got to think about the children here. This is the FBI director testifying to the Senate that he is fundamentally concerned about the security of the United States if these companies turn encryption on by default. There's no way that goes unnoticed. What we have been suggesting, uh, and the cryptologists and cryptographists that I talk to say— Which are hacks— this is doable, is for the companies themselves to build in backdoors, to build in uh, a way to have legal access, a backdoor, when confronted with a proper legal authority so that they can get access to the information. So the debate is that if you build in a backdoor method, someone will, someone who you don't want to get access to it will eventually get access to it. That's what the security community is worried about, and that if you build a backdoor that the United States government can use, Iran's government and China's government can use it as well. And they'll legally have to if they want to operate in those regions, just like they're compelled by other legal domestic security laws now. If they build it, it'll get used. That's concern number one. Number two, it could get abused by an attacker. What the FBI director is doing here very cleverly is he's, he's confusing the argument. He's confusing the argument by saying, we're not asking for the FBI to get a backdoor. We're not asking for a backdoor. We're asking for the companies to build in a legal method for us to get access after subpoena. They are going to build the backdoor. We're not asking for the backdoor. And the people we talk to say it's totally possible because they've consulted somebody who's an expert with every fucking infrastructure out there. Give me a break. Oh, well, anyways. So the idea is that they will build in the back door, not the FBI. And he's twisting the language around to make it seem entirely practical, even though if you understand any of this at all. It's clearly, clearly a back door. And he tries to come up with something to say besides a back door while he's describing it. ...ourselves in a situation where no matter how bulletproof or ironclad the legal authority, no matter how compelling the facts and circumstances, no matter how horrific the crime or heartbreaking the victim, we will not be able to get access to the content that we need to keep people safe. 
what we have been suggesting uh, and the cryptologists and cryptographists that I talk to cryptographist say this is doable is for the companies themselves to build in a backdoor, uh, a way to have legal access when confronted with a proper legal authority so that they can get access to the information and provide it in response to a warrant or a court order. We're not going to have a key. We're not asking for a backdoor. That's a, a myth. Yeah. See, all he wants is a backdoor. It's a myth that he's asking for a backdoor, guys. An urban legend that has been uh, uh, directed our way. But this is a subject that I think the American people need to understand because decisions that affect the life and blood of Americans all over this country, which normally are made by our elected representatives, are in effect getting made in corporate offices in big technology companies. And That's a legitimate problem, and he's conflating a speech issue now with a security issue, conflating two other issues again. Here is what gets me so angry, and you can tell this gets me upset, is the Obama and now the Biden administration officials will destroy our privacy and security while wearing a suit and tie and telling us it's good for us and it's the patriotic thing to do and everybody nodding along and all of the words sounding right. But when you understand what's actually going on underneath it all, it's devastating. If they require something like this legally built into software, it's going to devastate the free software ecosystem in the United States. And it's going to fundamentally make it a risk to build a new software product in the United States. Companies are just going to look at doing it outside the United States. It's already a feature for a software hosting provider to be outside the U.S. because of the existing national security laws. The email provider I use, ProtonMail, one of their number one features is they're outside the U.S. and the domestic security laws. That's going to become even a bigger phenomenon if something like this, where they mandate a flawed security model, and even if it was cryptographically sound today, you know this bastard is aware that quantum computing is not that far away and that encryption is going to have a hell of a time keeping up with that. You know he's aware of that because you know that's something they're concerned about. So something that gets implemented today could be crackable in 2035, 2040, something or even sooner. And the software that gets deployed in these government institutions and these large institutions, commercial ones, stays around for 20, 30 years sometimes. I mean, you'll still see when you go somewhere from time to time, Windows XP. I remember I had a client, one of the very last clients I had, their manufacturing floor was run by old Macs. And when they'd have something die, you'd have to go try to find somebody on eBay who's partying a machine to, to fix something. And, and <laughs> that was just the way they ran stuff. And so this bastard, it really upsets me because I care a lot about technology. And I think you can't have security without privacy and you can't have privacy without security. And if you fundamentally make one of them flawed, you don't have either. And now we have the chief of the FBI, the director of the FBI, testifying to the United States Congress that commercial companies need to build in flaws into their products, and he's using language that the American people is go are going to believe. And at least with the Trump admi administration officials, you could tell they were slimeballs. You could tell they were former gangsters or, or people, you know, hitmen for hire. And you could tell they were lying to your face. Like the guy that was, um, oh, what's the, what's the, oh, shoot, I can't remember the, uh, the FCC chairman's name, 
But he's a great example. He was, you know, that guy. He was a great example. All of them were. And now you have this guy in the suit with the nice words talking about what America needs to prioritize. Different people can come down to different places on that balancing, but I would submit that's a balancing that should be made up here and not by one company based on its business model. And in the context, for example, of child exploitation, we get, and to Facebook's great credit, we get millions, millions of tips on child exploitation through NCMEC every year that help us prevent and rescue kids, hundreds of kids every year. If they move forward in the direction they're moving in, which is the direction, by the way, that Apple already went, we're going to be in a position where those tips, those leads, that content, that information, that feed we get from Facebook, will drop into the abyss. So the tips will be gone. The victims, all those kids will still be out there. The pedophiles that are uh, exploiting them, they'll still be out there. The only thing that will be different is that neither the company nor we in law enforcement will know who they are, where they are, or what they're doing. And I don't think that's a situation that we want to find ourselves in. So we would welcome the opportunity to work with the companies, perhaps uh, encouraged or incentivized uh, through Congress, to get to a situation where we can balance strong cybersecurity, absolutely, it's a key part of our mission as well at the FBI, along with strong flesh and blood security, especially for America's children. Thank you. Mommy needs a joint. Won't someone think of the children is his closing argument. It shouldn't be made by somebody in an executive office. It should be made by the people's representatives appealing to their narcissism and their sense for control. Really, really remarkable. And that's how that conversation is going to go. And those who advocate for something else will be dangerous. We're going to be uh, the domestic version of the terrorists. (laughs) I, I laugh, but I actually think it's kind of true. Uh, then there's another. There was another moment. Uh, Senator Hiron, uh, Hirono, I think it is. She's from Hawaii, so I, I, I'm getting the pronunciation probably wrong. But she revealed how the Democrats plan to use Section 203 to go after Whitey. And you said that terrorism moves at the speed of social media. Senators Warner, Klobuchar, and I recently introduced the Safe Tech Act, which would pull back. Section 230, immunity from tech... Oh, I said 203. So Section 230 is an issue that both the right and the left have something they want to do with it. And this is that indemnity that says that the platform providers are not responsible for the content that their users post. But if you are an editor, if you're an editorial organization, you are responsible. So now they're saying what we want to do is we want to tweak it just a little bit. We want to tweak it so that way... They don't have indemnity for certain types of content. Companies for things like civil rights violations and wrongful death suits. Do you think that exposing these companies to civil liability would uh, force them basically to uh, take extremist content off of their platforms? So they're hoping that if they threaten them with, with screwing with their Section 230, they can use it to essentially moderate. And they'll do it under the guise of extremist white nationalist, you know, um, uh, what is it? I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank today, I guess. Xenophobia. Xenophobia. ...and wrongful death suits. Do you think that exposing these companies to civil liability would uh, force them, basically, to uh, take extremist content off of their platforms? 
people take these kinds of content more seriously and do something about them? Well, Senator, uh, I, I want to be careful not to uh, get out uh, ahead of the rest of the administration and weighing in on specific pieces of legislation. But Which to me sounds like the Biden administration is working on a piece of legislation just like this and then we'll you know, have it run through its regular course. Having said that, uh, I think there are a few things I could say. You know, one is while the immunity uh, under Section 230 has obviously helped the evolution of the social media industry, it's also allowed it to avoid uh, a, a lot of the uh, burdens and risks that other mm -hmm. brick-and-mortar companies uh, have had to face. And it means that important decisions uh, that affect many aspects of society uh, that would... You know, like us having more leverage over them. ...normally be made by the people's elected representatives are now being made in corporate offices uh, in the industry. And so, while I can't comment on specific legislation, I certainly can tell you that I see the value maybe it's the best way of putting it, uh, of incentivizing online platforms to address both illicit content uh, on their platforms uh, and to assist law enforcement in bringing to justice criminals who use those platforms to mm -hmm. victimize Americans. Huh. Isn't that a great uh, no but yes answer he just gave there? So the senator who just was speaking, she's worried also about encrypted platforms, and she name-drops uh, Telegram. And then there is also the concern that as uh, entities such as Facebook and Twitter do more to control, uh, modify these, these, this kind of uh, content. You, you, no, she got it right the first time. She, she caught herself there. Did you catch it? She realized what she was saying. Just like, just like when Holly asked, are you going to force them? Now she's using the word control. Are you going to force them? We can incentivize them. Can we control them? These are the words that the senators are using, and words matter. And then there is also the concern that as uh, entities such as Facebook and Twitter do more to control, uh, modify these, these, this kind of uh, content, then uh, this could encourage, um, drive the extremists to use encrypted platforms like Telegram and Signal. So that's another area that we're going to need to address. I wanted to. Got to do something about Telegram and Signal. It's another area that needs to be addressed. But moving on, then she had to go to her standard talking points. In the two days of the riot hearings, uh, there really was not much more substance than what I have just presented you. But there was that constant question. Uh, and I just thought, the, here's, here's a. I'm going to play a little Klobuchar for you to just show you how kind of. Lazy, the Democrats are just checking the box on this one issue. Um, I want to start by asking you the same questions I asked our witnesses last week, and that is that based on what you know now, including the recent Justice Department indictments, do you agree there is clear evidence uh, that supports the conclusion that uh, there was those who planned and coordinated the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? Does everyone agree with that? Yes, no? We are seeing indications from our charging documents of people that coalesced together before and made some plans. Okay. So everyone is a yes on this? Do someone want to say if they're a no? <laughs> I don't want to call on everyone. Yes. Are you all a yes? Yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay. Um, then would you agree that it involved white supremacists and extremist groups, the planning? 
Now, this is an interesting question because you get an insight to the actual numbers, a sense, because there's it's how do you know? How do you know how many white supremacists are at an event? How do you actually know that? Well, one way you could kind of measure something like that is by those you who arrest who say they're a white supremacist. Is everyone a yes on that? And I just say that we're seeing a wide range of involvement um, and still a lot left to be identified, right? A lot of these. No, does it involve white supremacists? And she doesn't want to say it directly. That's what I'm asking. Some extremist group. Yeah, there's some. Yeah, we see some. We've arrested some. Yeah, there's. But she just said her first answer was there's a wide range. Some. And was the uh, was the event not planned by Antifa? Oh, got to get the Antifa question in there. At this point, we have not identified a specific individual that we've charged associating or self-identifying with Antifa. Okay, thank you. And we basically just go through that checklist for every single guest that they have to interview. They got to get that in there. You know, that conspiracy can't stand. You know, that's that's one conspiracy that just takes it just takes it way too far. Can't let that be. Um, Now, uh, there was also the moment where uh, this is the last one for. Oh, actually. Let me see. Actually, I have one. I have a, two bonus clips I'm going to play for you on this one. The FBI director also had a question about was a question was asked about fusion centers. Well, certainly, I have other questions for the record, but you testified before about a fusion cell developed to address both hate crimes and domestic terrorism. Ah, yeah, I'm sorry. Fusion cells. So uh, this is I think this is Grassley. Uh, I didn't have a video for this one. This is an interesting thing that they're doing is they have these uh, fusion cells that the FBI has set up to blend their various types of terrorism hunters together. Has that been helpful? It has. Uh, so what you're referring to is something that I put in place, I guess, about 18 months, maybe two years ago. I created a domestic terrorism hate crimes fusion cell, which brought together because a lot of these crimes could fit either into a domestic terrorism bucket or a hate crimes bucket. And what I was worried about was making sure that within the FBI, we didn't have a left-hand, right-hand problem. Uh, and so we brought together people focusing on both into a single fusion cell with the goal of trying to be proactive uh, against some of the threats that are coming. And in, uh, one example... Threats that are coming, he says. ...that I'll cite that we're particularly pleased with, which I think is a, an indication of the success the cell is having... As uh, we were able to get in front of and prevent uh, an attempted, uh, I think, explosives attack on a synagogue in Colorado. Uh, and uh, that, I think, is largely a, a credit to the, uh, the fusion cell, which was able to kind of help us figure out how to get in front of those kinds of attacks. Fusion cell. Well, I got one more bonus yeah, one. No, no, no. no, no I got no, one no, more. No, it's, no, this no. is Lindsey Graham. No, 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 no. Hey. And again, this is audio only, but the exchange was interesting because he just he kind of refused to acknowledge if the Proud Boys are terrorists or what that group even is. Is the Proud Boys, are they a domestic terrorist group? Uh, well, I don't think we have treated the Proud Boys itself as a domestic terrorism group, but we certainly have individuals. What does it take to make the list? Well, there is, uh, uh, as you may know, uh, Senator, uh, under federal law, under U.S. law, there is no... Uh, list of domestic terrorism organizations the same way there is for foreign terrorist organizations. Well, let's let's th- think about that in the next 47 seconds. Lindsay. <clears throat> Oath Keepers, are, are they a domestic terrorist organization? We ha- Again, as with Proud Boys, we have individuals who associate yeah. themselves with that Was group Antifa who are Antifa a terror- domestic terrorist organization? Same thing, same answer? Same answer. 
So why don't we think about how to gather better information and expose some of these groups? If they were on a list, would it make it easier for you? Man, why does this just seem like a bad idea? I think the issue of whether or not to designate or, or have a formal mechanism for designating domestic terror uh, groups uh, in the same way we do with, say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, I think th uh, there's reasonable debate about whether or not it would really the, advance the KKK the a domestic terrorist group? Well, th there is no uh, okay. legal designation for that, domestic that, terrorist My groups. point is, I don't know if we should have one or not, but I think it's time to think about it. Lindsey Graham, shut up. Shut up. God. We already have a list that's already been horrible, the no-fly list. Can we, no list. Let's not do the list thing. All right, the, now if you're thinking to yourself, you'd like a little more show. Well, I've got more to talk about. The overtime is coming up. We're going to get into your buddy Kuman, as well as O'Nancy. We'll do a little CPAC recap, and then a few of my favorite clips of the week as well as probably the best fail that I've seen in a long time. It really made me smile. So that's coming up in the overtime. If you'd like to get that, that's video. That's over at unfiltered.tube, and you'll see it posted there. The full live stream for this episode is also, assuming everything works out. I mean, I should be careful. I'm not done yet, but <laughs> assuming everything works out, this also, this whole show with the video clips for just about like 80, 90% of everything we talk about, unfiltered.tube, it's all over there. Now, there's a lot of links, additional stories, supporting links and information, all referenced in our show notes. You can get that at unfilter.show slash 352. And then last but not least, if you enjoyed what you listened to, if you got some information or some value out of it, please consider supporting this production at patreon.com slash unfilter. I will say, sitting through days and days of hearings is soul draining. These people are the worst and seeing a patron email come in saying I got a new patron keeps me going. It's really great to see that. Patreon.com slash unfilter. If you can't contribute financially, sharing this show with someone you think might enjoy it would also help out a lot too. Thanks so much for joining me on this week's episode of the Unfilter program. I may be in the woods next week. I don't know. But I'll see you probably next week. Next week.